Therefore the Lord Himself will give you a sign. Look, the young woman is with child and shall bear a son and shall name him Emmanuel. Would you please pray with me? May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. What a strange thing to promise. Look, the Lord will give you a sign. The young woman is with child and shall bear a son and shall name him Emmanuel. The promise sounds nice and sweet. After all, it's part of a lot of the hymns that we sing this time of year. We read these verses and our minds immediately jump to that beautiful manger scene with Mary and Joseph carefully cradling the baby Jesus. All the animals are there, remaining perfectly quiet and still. But this promise is made to a particular person in a particular moment, and that's what makes it strange. At the time of Isaiah's proclamation, the very words that Pam just read, forces were gathering and attempting to invade Jerusalem. The king at the time, his name was Ahaz, was deeply afraid. And it was in the midst of that fear that God offers the king a sign. Any sign that he wants, let it be deep as hell or high as heaven. God offers Ahaz any sign so that the king will remember to trust the Lord. And Ahaz, appearing quite faithful, says, God, I'm not going to put you to the test. It's the same thing Jesus says during the temptation story. But the Lord ignores Ahaz and proclaims the coming sign. So it is while King Ahaz is shaking in his boots, while troops are gathering at the gates of Jerusalem, that he receives a sign of God's promised presence. A young woman will bear a son named Emmanuel. Now let's be real for a moment. God's promise of a baby is weird. And it's ambiguous. God does not say, I will destroy the invading forces that are coming to Jerusalem with violence, nor does the Lord promise that Ahaz will survive. Instead, God says a baby is coming to save the world. I don't know about you, but Christmas to me always seems full of happy-go-lucky faith, without any doubt, without any questions. Lights are hung up in trees and on houses. People tune their radios to the Christmas stations. And parents want their children to behave themselves in all of the various Christmas pageants. But doubts and questions are there. Perhaps just barely below the surface of this facade we wear around during this time of year. Do we doubt? Are we even allowed to? What happens to us if we do? More than a few of us will be sitting in these pews on Christmas Eve singing joy to the world and celebrating the baby Jesus while at the same time we're wondering what it means to believe. King Ahaz doubted. While surrounded by enemies and offered a miracle by God, he insists on not taking God at God's word. This might sound really faithful, but God offers something incredible and Ahaz turns it down. His pious response is more a dismissal of the Lord than anything faithful. Moses doubted. 
When the Lord asked him to go and deliver people from the tyranny of Egypt, Moses quickly listed off excuse after excuse after excuse for why he shouldn't be the one to go. Jeremiah doubted. When the Lord called him to be a prophet to God's people, his response was quick. Lord, I'm only a boy. Surely I can't speak on your behalf. Jonah doubted. When the Lord commanded him to travel to Nineveh, he traveled in the opposite direction in order to avoid what he'd been asked to do. Zechariah doubted. When the Lord spoke to him and told him that his wife was going to become pregnant, he did not believe the Lord could perform such a miracle. John Wesley, this guy in the middle stained glass window, he doubted. He was asked to go to a strange new place called Georgia and preach the good news. But he said, I have no faith. And when he told his superiors in the church about it, they said, that's fine. Preach faith until you have it. And even Jesus doubted. When he found himself all alone and nailed to the hard wood of the cross, he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Sometimes we feel like if we have doubts, it's the complete opposite of having faith. In fact, many people leave the church whenever that first doubt starts to creep in and they begin to wonder about the truth and the promises of all of God's word. I know more people than I can count who at some point were devout and faithful followers of Jesus. And all it took was one little dose of doubt and their faithfulness started to crumble. Was there really a virgin birth? Did Jesus really walk on water? Did he really feed 5,000 people? Did he really bring sight back to the blind? Does God really care about our individual lives? Did God really raise Jesus from the dead? And their entire discipleship hinged on the answer to just one of those questions. And when they could not find an answer that was satisfying, they left. I have friends from seminary, people who gave three years of their lives to pursue this thing that we call a call to ministry. And some of them have left the church since then because a professor told them something like, Moses didn't write the first five books of the Bible, or Paul didn't write the letter to the Hebrews, or some of the Psalms that we say David wrote were definitely not written by David. Doubt. Such a dirty word. For a long time it has been shunned from the church and treated like a mortal sin. It's been seen as a weakness. But if you ask me, doubting is often a sign that our faith has a pulse. That it's alive at all. Because we are exploring and we are searching and we are questioning Doubt and faith are not opposites. You can't really have one without the other. So we're now going to try something a little different, something a little strange, and frankly, it might not work. But I'm going to leave the pulpit. I'm going to come down to you where you are, and we're going to talk about doubt. Now, the point of this is not for you to say something like, Pastor Taylor, I have trouble believing the virgin birth. And then have me completely remove your doubts with a prayer and a speech and healing? No. 
The point of this is for us to be vulnerable and intentional with one another, for us to connect as a community of faith around the fact that we do have doubts, but that God is big enough to handle them. So what are your doubts? What do you question? What are you unsure about? Perhaps you're afraid to bring it up, and that's okay. Maybe you know someone else who has a doubt, you can share theirs. But I'll go first, because this is my crazy idea. When I was appointed to this church about three and a half years ago, I was pretty nervous, I was pretty scared, and a lot of people said, prepare yourself for a funeral. They said, somebody always dies the first week. So while you're busy getting everything else together, prepare yourself, you're probably going to have to do a funeral. So the first day came, and I waited by the phone, and no one called. The first day became the first week, the first week became the first month, the first month became the first year. And nobody died. I thought, God must really have called me here. Everybody stayed alive. This is incredible. This is great. I didn't think this was going to happen. But then Betty Lancaster died. First funeral I ever had to do. First person that died here in a whole year. And so I met with her family. I got the funeral together. We had the funeral. And then someone died two weeks later. And another person died. And another person died. I had to bury parents a week apart from each other. In nine months, 18 people died in our church. And we're not a big church. 18 people is a lot. And in the midst of all that, I started to death. Where is God in the midst of all of this death? I can tell you where God is when the little preschoolers sit here at the altar. I can tell you where God is when I hear you all singing faithfully. I can tell you where God is when Rick nails an organ part. But where is God in the midst of all that death? So what are your doubts? What do you wrestle with? I've got like six more, so I can keep talking, but I'm referring here. Taylor? Yes, ma'am, what do you doubt? You can I talk have, to the microphone. I have serious doubts about whether I, that the, I doubt that the Bible should be read literally because there are other faiths that have scripture that they consider sacred. And so I specifically doubt that you have to be a Christian to be saved. Hmm. I think that um, there are people of many faiths uh, and I believe that God's Mercy is fathomless, and so it does, we don't have to take everything literally in the Bible. We just need to love one another. Doubts about taking the Word of God literally at every single facet. That's a pretty good one. You know, it does say somewhere in Scripture that if you have a tattoo, you should be stoned by your community. I know some people in this church that would be in a lot of trouble if that happened. I'm not going to name names. I'm not going to
feast in the, with the Christ child born in Bethlehem when Bethlehem has been in ruins many times. I'm coming back up here because Terry's comment was a great segue. This week, after I received that horrible, horrible email from my friend, I was scrolling through the seemingly endless cycle of news that's occurring all over the world. I read about Russia's apparent involvement in the democratic election process here in the United States. I read about Apple, the company's struggle to provide Bluetooth compatible headphones in time for Christmas consumers. And I read and I read and I read and then I saw a picture. A picture that haunted me in that moment and still haunts me right now. In the image, there's a man and a woman, and they're walking through the city of Aleppo, Syria. The woman's face is covered, and her husband is cradling their infant baby in his arms. And with one hand, he's holding up an IV bag that's running a line down into the middle of the swaddling clothes that he's holding. I'll admit that what I should have been struck by most was the violence in the background of the picture or perhaps the terror in that man's face. But what struck me most about it was how much it reminded me of Mary, Joseph, and Jesus. Do you know that more than a quarter million people have died in Syria because of their civil war? 250,000. And that's just the lowest estimates we have. Most of them, children. And while we here fret over the role of Russia and the incoming president-elect and whether or not consumer goods will arrive on time for Christmas, modern Marys and jaded Josephs are doing everything they can to protect their baby Jesus. And it makes me doubt. I read the statistics. I see the photos. I want to know where in the world is God in all of this. How can the God who knows us by name, who has counted the very hairs on our heads, rest easy while innocent men and women and children are dying at a rate we can barely fathom? This is happening. And while it's happening, Christians in our country are worried about Muslims and are seriously considering instituting a registration of all of them. And do you know what's happening in Aleppo? Christians and Muslims are serving shoulder to shoulder. They're pulling children from rubble. They're consolidating food and resources to share with as many as possible and are the remaining sources of light in a city under the shadow of death. I doubt God in the midst of something as terrible as what's happening in Syria, what's happening in the Middle East. But then this strange thing happens. I start to have hope. I have hope when I read about Christians and Muslims working together to bring joy to people who feel no joy. I start to have hope when I think about those little children from our preschool who get the Christmas story better than most of us do. Young children who receive communion with more faith than most of us do. And so I live in the tension between faith and doubt. And we all do. We vacillate between the two of them like a frenetic sphere in a pinball machine. We doubt and we trust. We doubt 
and then we get a sign of hope. We break down under the tyranny of violence and are built back up by the very nature of people serving one another at Christmas time. We weep for the world and its destructive desires and then are comforted by the God who came to take on our flesh as a baby to know what it means to suffer. We lift up our fists clenched together in frustration to the sky. We are angry with God. And then we hear God speak in a still small voice. Lo, I am with you always. Faith and doubt. You can't have one without the other. I offer this to you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. One God now and forever. Amen.